0: We've seen it uh, reach a new all time low, uh, surpassing October's all time low. And what we've really seen in the last few months really is sort of a, a reflection of what's been happening in the economy.
1: Hello, and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam
2: Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. It's Tuesday, December 30th at 4 p.m. That was Lynn Franco you just heard talking. She's the director of the Conference Board Consumer Research. And she was talking about this month's consumer confidence number and how it's at an all-time low, uh, which is especially troubling because it had increased slightly in November, so people might have thought that things were getting better.
1: And Alex, I got to say, this is one of those phrases you hear all the time, consumer confidence rose or consumer confidence shrank. I feel like this is planet money's, this is what we got to do, right? We have to explain what that means. Take it away, sir. All right. Because I was confused about it a while ago and I decided to find out. And what I learned is this, there's this, it's not a government organization. It's the uh, conference board in Michigan. And every month they call about 5,000 people and they basically say- How do you think the economy is doing? Do you think it's going to be doing better or worse in six months? And they take all that data and they come up with a number that shows are people more optimistic or less optimistic. I also learned that there's a lot of people who think this is a ridiculous number. It means nothing. It's not like unemployment or GDP where there's an actual real world equivalent. It's just the views of some people and it doesn't really mean anything. Other people say, no, no, it means a lot. I say we sit out whether it means a lot or means a little. But just when you hear consumer confidence, think survey of people asking them, how's the economy doing and how's
2: it going to be doing in the next few months? And that is not the only gloomy news. Um, the S&P case Schiller House Price Index, which tracks home values in 20-year cities, says that home values fell at the fastest pace on record uh, this month. They're off an average of 18% from a year earlier and Twenty-three uh, percent from the peak in two thousand six.
1: So basically, if you bought a house for four hundred grand two years ago, it's now worth three hundred grand on average. Something like yes, on average. Some right. places
2: worse, some places better. Yeah,
1: right, right. Like if you if you were in Dallas, which had the smallest decline, it's only down a tiny bit. But if you were in Phoenix or Las Vegas or San Francisco, then it's down even more. The, the, than a hundred grand, right? And that was um, one of
2: those little notes that was in this that was in this report that I was actually a little surprised by. They had the, the 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 worst cities basically for house price declines, and it was Phoenix and Las Vegas, which I feel like I was a little familiar with. But then San Francisco was in there also, which I was a little surprised by.
1: Yeah, um, that is surprising. Yeah, their their, um, their home
2: values are off over thirty percent.
1: I mean, it, it's upsetting, but I feel like every week we're like reporting: okay, worst house prices decline ever, worst
2: consumer confidence ever. Anyway, so. right. Maybe it helps to know that the um that the misery is spread out around the globe. You're talking about our planet money
1: indicator 8.1. Yes. 8.1. That is the percentage by which Japanese industrial output fell during the month of November. 8.1%. So so if you think of all the factories in Japan, how much stuff they made in November, they made almost ten percent less stuff than they did in October, which is the biggest fall off. That's 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 just a huge fall off. The biggest ever since Japan started recording how its factories do.
2: It, just a a, a shocking Drop off for Japan, right? And and they started recording this stuff in the 1950s, um, and we get this information from this research note from Danske Bank, which is a Danish bank. And um, this research note is sort of um, sort of unusual, I think. Adam, uh, you get a lot of these things, right? These research notes. Yeah, I get. Every day I get hundreds of emails from, from banks and
1: researchers, research companies and others just saying we're analyzing this part of the economy or that part of the economy. And... um uh, they send them out to
2: investors and to the media and to other people. And and, and I'm and I'm betting that I'm not going out of a limb here when I say that they're not the most. They're, the language is pretty dry, sort of like investment decreased over Q4 by this amount, et cetera, et cetera. That's yeah. Thing, I mean, right? some
1: are literally just numbers. Others are like the tersest, most dry sentences you've ever seen. But not this one. Not today's <laughs> right. report on Japanese industrial output, as our friend and colleague David Kestenbaum pointed out. He Pointed out that this report has the most exclamation points he's ever seen in a financial <laughs> research report, which might a be bank. a new
2: which might be a new uh, planet money indicator that we can start the the, uh, the the exclamation point index, but there are not one but two exclamation points in this report, which is only two pages long by the way so and i'm just going to read one, one per p- page one per page so this is a yeah, an exclamation per page rate of one um so uh and I'm just going to read one here. It says, industrial production will have contracted close to 20% during Q408. <laughs> How does that sound? That I get good, it? Yeah.
1: I, I was always taught to write it so you don't need the exclamation point. <laughs> right. Um, you know, actually use words that convey um, a sense of drama, but rather than just a punctuation that conveys a sense of drama.
2: But what, um, what are they saying? They're just basically saying that. They're saying this is nuts, that you never,
1: ever, ever in any modern economy see, you know, all modern economies, there's bubbles and bobbles. And, you know, sometimes factories make more stuff, sometimes they make less stuff. But for them to make 80% as much stuff in a short period of time, that is – it just never happens. It's just crazy. I mean, that means if you went to every – factory in japan on average like one machine out of five isn't working or one guy out of five isn't working um you know and it shows that basically what we already know but it's just yet another dramatic example that the
2: global consumer is not buying stuff
1: factories are not making stuff it's it's
2: shocking right which uh brings us to um the next uh, segment of our report which is um barack obama basically um I think nobody's more aware of the gloomy economic news than him. Uh, I'm sorry, than he. Um, And uh, he's been assembling a pretty impressive team of economic advisors to help him figure out what to do. Um, You know, there's Paul Volcker, the legendary former chairman of the Fed, who's credited by many with getting us out of the last big economic crisis we had in the 70s. Larry Summers, who's the former president of Harvard University. Pretty much everybody on his team you know, you look at all the resumes and you're constantly bumping into Ivy League educations and sort of dramatic overachievement at every turn. Yeah.
1: I was just talking to a very right-wing conservative economist who doesn't like anything about Obama's plan, but did at least say, this is an unbelievably impressive group of economists. This is the best and the brightest. and And that is one of the reasons people are comparing this to Kennedy. I mean, you're hearing this the new Camelot. I mean, you have this young, charismatic president, you have this fanatical support for him, this mandate to change things fundamentally. You have this belief that he's not just going to be a politician, he's going to just get the smartest people in the world into his administration, and they're going to come up with the solutions to the problems, the right solutions. So I decided to talk about this with with Robert Samuelson, the uh, columnist for Newsweek and The Washington Post, because he has this book out right now called The Great Inflation and Its Aftermath, The Past and Future of American Affluence, which might not sound like it, but it's a book that deals a lot with Kennedy's administration and uh, what happens when you get the smartest economists in the
2: world to meet together at the White House and decide to fix the economy. And you called him up basically to find out how it worked out for Kennedy. Did, did did the team he assembled actually, were they brilliant enough to actually fix the economy?
0: I would say they were brilliant, but they did not fix the economy and everything that they planned turned out not to work. They expected to create uh, uh, an economic policy in which there were was faster growth, fewer recessions and less unemployment. What in fact happened was that, and, and, and there was very little inflation. They expected a little bit more inflation, but not much more. What happened was there was a lot more inflation. Inflation went from about 1% at the beginning of the 60s to about 6% at the end of the 60s. And with ups and downs, it became got to double-digit levels by the mid-70s and double-digit levels at the end of the 70s and early 80s. There were more recessions as the Federal Reserve strove to, rein in uh, this inflation so that you had recessions in 1969-70, 1973-75, 70, 1980, and then 1981-82. On average, unemployment was higher and not lower. So the policies worked out to exactly the opposite of what they were intended to work out to, to, to happen. Do we know why? Yes, we know why. It, uh, the, the the ideas on which they were based were unrealistic and even if they had been realistic, the, the government could not respond as quickly as the economists wanted the, the response. And there was an, an inflationary bias in the policies.
2: Uh, so let's stop right there, Adam. Like inflation, He just said a word, inflationary bias. W- what does that mean? He
1: just means the government was spending a lot of money it didn't have. And when a government spends a lot of money it doesn't have, when it borrows money and it goes into a deficit – it usually causes inflation, but it might not cause it right away, right? Right. That's kind of the one of the most powerful things that Samuelson um, taught me is that the policy, there might be a problem in a policy, but it might not appear for years, maybe even decades.
0: I, I think you, have, as difficult as it is to contemplate and predict the consequences of policies that we undertake today, you have to try at least to think ahead 10 or 15 years because the initial effects of these policies was to create a boom. It was ultimately an inflationary boom, but it was very pleasurable. In the 1960s, the country went through an economic boom that was really unrivaled until we got we had a similar boom in the 1990s. And for four or five years, it looked like these policies were succeeding admirably and doing just what the economists thought they would do. But in the end, it turned out that the long-term unintended consequences of these policies were much worse and had much graver effects than, than almost anyone anticipated in the 1960s.
2: Okay. So, I mean, what, this, what does this mean for, for Obama's team? I mean, is, it, is, is, is the same thing going to happen to him that happened to Kennedy? Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to know. I,
1: I asked Samuelson about that.
0: Well, I do and I don't. Um, I, I think that, first place, I think that we should have a stimulus the collapse in demand here has been pervasive and profound and in a very crude way when private demand collapses not just in the united states but around the world uh, you ought to be a little bit worried that it's not gonna uh, bounce back of its own accord and you need some offsetting um, some offsetting force here and the only offsetting force here is to have public demand go up Where I am a little bit skeptical or worried, this is only, at best, a temporary solution. And you need to have private demand regenerate itself. And we're not seeing much talk about the policies that are needed to do this which are difficult policies. First, uh, you you need to find something in the United States to offset the collapse in consumer spending, or at least the decline in consumer spending. But part of the problem here is international. Uh, It is that the Asian countries, particularly China, uh, consumers there save too much and spend too little. And in the United States, we spend too much and save too little. Now, if we can reverse those patterns, uh, we will have a sustainable economic recovery at some point. But if we can't reverse those two patterns, if the Asians continue to save too much and spend too little and the Americans then uh, reverse their current or at least their recent past behavior of spending too much and saving too little and they begin to save more and and spend less, then we have the ingredients of of a prolonged global economic slump. And how to reverse this international imbalance is really the core of our current problem. And there's not very much talk about how to do this.
1: Thank you to Robert Samuelson, author of The Great Inflation and Its Aftermath,
2: The Past and Future of American Affluence. And uh, be sure to check out uh, our year-end slideshow on the uh, on our blog, uh, NPR. Dot org slash money um it has a it's a, it's this really great sort of a year end the year end and pictures that you our listeners have sent in to to it's us pretty it looks awesome great. Yeah. thank you
1: very much yeah we won't be podcasting tomorrow or thursday but we'll be back on friday and then pretty much back to normal next week i'm adam davidson
2: and i'm alex bloomberg thanks for listening <laughs>